This is the Fine Film and TV Podcast, and I'm your host, Jared Samuel. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself since this is my first go-round with this type of thing. I was born in 1971, which was prior to a lot of the blockbusters and the trilogies and the extended runs of of certain films you know now we've got uh, Fast 9 and however many other Fast and Furious movies there are and I grew up with Star Wars of course and you know Harry Potter came much later the DC and Marvel films came much later so they were a little bit different for me but back in 1971 remembering a few of the films as I look back that came out the year I was born, um, are Dirty Harry is one of them, and also Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I believe the James Bond film Diamonds Are Forever came out in 1971 as well. That was the last official James Bond film to have Sean Connery. There was the kind of a flop Never Say Never Again, which only happened because of a lawsuit, which I'm sure we can cover in another podcast the James Bond films, because I love those too. They're great. But today, as I kick off this podcast, and I really wanted to go and talk about what I feel is the most important film ever made. And I don't know if you ever thought about what the most important film ever made was, but I can tell you for me, and having seen this film many times for certain reasons that I can no doubt say from my you know my experience and my uh, research and just looking into things that Jaws in 1975 was the most important film ever made and I'm going to plead my case to you now as to why that is um, I really strongly feel Jaws is the most important film ever, and there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons, but the big one is that it is the first official uh, blockbuster, you know, you would say. The first official summer blockbuster. Prior to Jaws, there was no such thing as a summer blockbuster, and when Jaws happened, it was an unlikely film to be a summer blockbuster. I mean, come on. You have a giant killer shark, lots of blood, and it was a PG film, and back in those days, I mean, I'm talking like I'm really old or something, back in those days when they walked uphill to school both ways, 10 miles in the snow. Um, Back in those days, there was no such thing as a summer blockbuster, and back in those days, a PG film could get away with quite a bit more than a PG film these days can get away with because of the rating system. So, you know, today Jaws would most certainly be at least PG-13, if not rated R, uh, based on a lot of factors. Uh, You know, the gore factor, there was a lot of objectionable type of material for the rating system. Uh, a lot of curse words, a lot of uh, those type of things. So 
it's hard to say exactly where it would fall today as far as the rating system, but PG, um, it ain't. You know, it definitely wouldn't be PG today. Um, you know, you always say, hear that saying, that wouldn't fly today. Well, Jaws wouldn't fly PG today. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's a very, very important film from the blockbuster aspect because of several people that were involved with it. So I'll start at the top with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, Steven Spielberg was 28 years old at the time. And this was a film that when he read the book, honestly, he did not like the human characters in the book. And I don't know if anybody out there has read the book Jaws by Peter Benchley, but I, I kind of agree with Steven Spielberg on this one. The human characters were not likable people. I mean, come on, Matt Hooper had an affair with Chief Brody's wife in the film. And so you're, you're going, wow, in the book, I mean. So you're going, wow, how's that going to play out in the film? I mean, definitely not going to be a, a PG type of thing, I don't think, right? So that gets kind of messed up in the, in the whole scheme of things. But Spielberg said he actually, when he was reading the book, actually rooted for the shark because the characters were unlikable. And he really uh, originally wasn't even the original director. Um, so this film, the fact that it even got made to begin with is kind of crazy. Uh, it had so many problems, even from the start, trying to find directors, uh, trying to find actors. Um, you know, just lots of things that, that happen with this film that, that are just really odd and strange. And today... Um, I've heard of a lot of films being canceled for far less than, than what happened on Jaws. So, you know, this one would have uh, would have taken the cake, really, if you think about it. And then there's my favorite film composer ever, and the second best classical composer in U.S. history to Aaron Copeland, and that's John Williams. And John Williams, basically, in this film wins an Academy Award for Best Score based on two notes. And, you know, everybody now in their head is, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Honestly, when Spielberg heard it from John Williams, Spielberg said to him, okay, so where's the real score? <laughs> he didn't even believe it. So it, it's just fantastic, um, you know, just on those merits alone and all the problems that it had that this film even happened and yet it becomes the first big summer blockbuster ever. Um, there wasn't such a thing as a summer blockbuster. Blockbusters didn't happen. Um, most films that were going to be anything were released at or near the holidays, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, because people weren't working or children were out of school. It actually, this film was, was destined to come out around Christmas in 1974, but because of so many filming delays, it actually got pushed out, and they pushed it into uh, summer of 1975. And that will now ever be lived out in infamy, as it is now the first official summer blockbuster, and thus I'll say the most important film ever made, because it paved the way for so many other films to be made um, beyond it. You know, think about who's involved. You have Steven Spielberg. You have John Williams. 
and you have a summer blockbuster that, you know, quite frankly, had this film flopped, we probably wouldn't have seen hardly anything else from Steven Spielberg. When the scene was filmed at the end, when they blew up the shark, the crew hated Spielberg so much, he heard rumors that they were going to dunk him and do sorts of things to him before he left, but he decided he wasn't even going to stick around for the final scene and give them the happiness to dunk him or do whatever. He thought the crew hated him, and they kind of did, because he drove them up a wall. Uh, filming went you know, five months longer than it should have been, and so many problems with the mechanical shark which, by the way, Steven Spielberg named Bruce after his lawyer. And, of course, anybody who has watched uh, Finding Nemo knows that the shark's name in that film is Bruce. That's no coincidence. But there were so many problems with Bruce the shark. They actually had built Bruce, and they built three of them to film. They built one with a left profile only, one with a right profile only, and a full one, and each one of them cost, and this is $1973-$74, a piece. So $750,000 just in mechanical sharks, and that, that's crazy at the time if you think about it. But they had so many problems with the shark, because when they built it and tested it, they tested it in freshwater pools. So when they brought it into the salt water, the salt water started to corrode inside and it caused all sorts of problems. And so, you know, it just added to the long, long list of things that went on with this film, which caused problems. So uh, really, really difficult. Then you have the writer of the book from whom the film is based off of, Peter Benchley, who objected to mostly everything about the film and all the things that were being changed, and they had to throw him off the set uh, probably several times, if I read it correctly. And it's interesting because um, how many books have you read as you see a film and have read the book? How many of them are actually true to the book? Very, very few. Personally, for me, and I can come up with some, I'm sure, that you know, are faithful adaptations from the book, but I'm going to tell you there's very few of them out there. Um, I can think of a few of maybe Stephen King's that were close. I would say, uh, for me, just not to get off topic too much here, but probably The Green Mile was the closest one, I think, book adaptation. And possibly, I mean, I don't want to dive too deeply into it, but a lot will say, the Lord of the Rings. Um, I think The Hobbit goes a little bit off off the rails a little bit there, those three films. But, hey, um, that's a topic for another time. But Jaws, the film, went off of topic for the book for which it was made, and Peter Benchley had to be thrown off the set. So there is a lot of really, really cool stuff, too, about this film that make it a film that endures in lore forever and one of those and it's a very cool scene and if you blink you'll miss it but there is a scene where a shooting star can be seen and many questions were asked about this you know was this a real shooting star in fact folks it was a real shooting star 
and at the time it was said to be the first shooting star to be captured on a major motion picture live so pretty cool stuff on the shooting star um, the actors in particular you have Richard Dreyfus, who played Matt Hooper and you know very strangely he is the only remaining of the three that is still alive uh, today so Richard Dreyfus is the only one that that is still alive um, I thought his part was great I, I think he's just a great actor and I thought he did excellent with this I thought the um, fun play he had with Quint really bore out in the the film and it was a lot of you know it was a lot of fun and there was some tenseness and some anger and angst and it turns out that that was real they just let it play out through the film because off the camera Robert Shaw and Richard Streifus could not stand each other they could not Robert Shaw was not the first choice for Quint uh, Steven Spielberg actually asked Lee Marvin to be Quint, but Lee Marvin said no, and it ended up eventually being Robert Shaw, but not without a lot of problems. Robert Shaw, at the time, was pretty much being hunted down by the IRS for not paying taxes, so to bring him in was very difficult. So they had to bring him in to film scenes, and when they were bringing him in to film scenes, he was drinking so much that in half the scenes that he's filming, he's drunk. And one day he actually got very you know frustrated because Spielberg was getting frustrated because they have to keep reshooting scenes because Robert Shaw's drunk, and he says off camera. I wish I could stop drinking for a little bit and get these scenes filmed. And Richard Dreyfus grabbed his glass and threw it in the ocean. And so that's just a little bit of the tension between the two of them. They did not like each other at all. And to get them to film some of the scenes together that they did is practically a miracle. Um, while we talk about that, we might as well bring up the famous scene where they are comparing scars in the inside the boat after they had just eaten dinner and it's getting dark and they've decided not to go in for the night because there's one barrel on the shark and they hope that it will tire the shark out and bring the shark up so that they can jab at it and hopefully uh, bring it into shore and Quint can get his $10,000 for him by himself. And so they filmed the famous scene with the scars and Hooper and, and Quint trading back and forth who's got the worst scars or who's got the the worst Nick and Mark and so they're they're drinking and and Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, infamous and says to Quint, Hey, what's that one there? And and Quint says, That's a tattoo I got removed. And Hooper makes fun and says, Let me guess, mother and there's a laugh and there's some great scenes and um, that is when Quint says that it is the USS Indianapolis. So a very famous scene 
in a very famous monologue that many people have looked into over the years and have said, boy, is this true about the USS Indianapolis? Um, I'm sorry to say, folks, largely it is not true. Uh, interestingly enough, when the USS Indianapolis um, was disabled and the men went into water, it wasn't sharks that killed most of them. It was exposure. you got to keep in mind the ocean was cold in most spots. It was um, June going into July. And where they were at, it was a secret. It was a secret mission delivering the bomb, but it wasn't the same as Quint described, all the sharks coming along and just having their pick with the men floating in the water. That's not what happened. So a lot of that was made up, but it made for a really, really great scene in the film. And um, one of the only moments where Quint and Cooper actually got along. Um, Roy Scheider did a really, really great job. I remember as a kid seeing it and going, Chief Brody's cool, man. He's got that 38 snub nose that he brings on the boat and uh, shoots at the shark and you know, you're cheering for him, kill the shark, kill the shark, and you know, you know that well just aren't gonna get you know this twenty five foot great white shark down. And uh, he did a really, really great job with it. Originally this role for Chief Brody was going to go to Charlton Heston, but the problem was Heston had done some big time films where he was the big, big hero and Spielberg didn't want to telegraph it so much in the film. And as a kid, I kind of can appreciate that looking back at it and saying, you really didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, no offense, I thought Hooper was dead. And I think everybody else did too. And actually in the book, Hooper dies. But interestingly how it played out and Chief Brody's the only one left and eventually kills the shark. Um, so, and Peter Benchley, of course, objected to that, too, and they threw him off the set. They didn't like how he was going to kill the shark. So, Roy Scheider gets the part after Heston was considered for it, and they turned out that the, the filmmakers turned down Heston. He was too big of a person at that point to play this part, Chief Brody. Heston was, you know, was, was in the in some big-time films where he was a big-time hero, and uh, I guess they didn't want to foreshadow too much on Chief Brody. And then it was offered, actually, to Robert Duvall, and he turned it down. And then they started poking around, and they realized, you know, we have a diamond in the rough here. Let's talk to Roy Scheider. Now, Roy Scheider had made his name in The French Connection, which I believe was another film in 1971, I think. So maybe we'll have to talk about that one down the road too but Roy Scheider had done a great job there and so they gave the part to Roy Scheider and the rest is history he signed on for that one and he plays Chief Brody in Jaws 2 but that is pretty much it um, as far as Roy Scheider his involvement in any of the Jaws films I will say that I don't really treat Jaws as a trilogy or a group of films or whatever, um, I, I tend to turn a blind eye to that. I think Jaws stands on its own. I think Jaws 2 is 
uh, a good enough film on its own merit, but after that, it's pretty much garbage. Uh, Jaws 3 was terrible, and let's not even talk about the actual film, because that just doesn't serve as any capacity. Um, they brought Michael Caine in to try to save the film, like, really, come on. So, so I want to finish up here and talk a little bit about why I feel this is the most important film ever made. And the main reason is it's Spielberg and Williams. Honestly, Spielberg was only 28 years old at this point and just getting going, making films. He hadn't even graduated as a director. He hadn't even graduated from film school. He did that years later. But this was such an important film because of its blockbuster status and because it kept Spielberg basically from quitting and then he went on to make some huge films after this films like Close Encounters Raiders of the Lost Ark you know Jurassic Park on and on and he made a lot of big time films and one of the biggest films he ever ever made after this E.T. with another great score by John Williams as for John Williams he not only scored Close Encounters and many other films like my favorite Raiders of the Lost Ark which I always forget to attribute to Spielberg because it's just so wild and great it's the best film ever but he also did Superman he collaborated with George Lucas who I think got the cue once Spielberg hit it big with Jaws and went ahead and made a little film that I like to call Star Wars, which came out on my birthday in 1977, and I was there. Plus all the sequels. And the rest is history, folks. The kings of the blockbusters are the Spielbergs and the Lucases, and John Williams is always there in the center. I'll do another podcast someday about why I like film scores so much and I listen to them probably more than any other type of music that I listen to although my music tastes are various I listen to film scores more than anything they're a great escape and I just think they're awesome and John Williams is the best and thus based on those items there I think that Jaws is the most important film ever made there you have it I'd love to hear your opinion about it. I'm going to be setting up a Facebook page and group soon for the Find Film and TV podcast. And I have a Gmail address. You can always reach out to me. Tell me how I did. Tell me how I didn't do. Give me your thoughts on Jaws and any other films that you feel are, are worthy to be discussed. And I'd be glad to, uh, to reply to you. My Gmail address is findfilmcast at gmail.com findfilmcast all one word at gmail.com and I want to thank everybody for listening today and I hope you have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you on the next Fine Film and TV podcast